This is Downtown Lowdown with Downtown Halifax Business Commission. Welcome to episode 52 of Downtown Lowdown with Downtown Halifax Business Commission, recorded on June 17th, 2021. This is where you can find out all you need or want to know about Downtown Halifax. I'm Alana McDonald-Mills, Director of Marketing. And I'm Ivy Ho, Director of Communications. We are your hosts for Downtown Lowdown. We'll be giving you the lowdown on what's new in business, resources, and issues that affect downtown. We also talk to key individuals that help make downtown Halifax better. This episode is being recorded via video conferencing, as some of us are still working remotely. So we apologize in advance for any issues with the sound quality. We begin this episode with Tracy Barbrick, Associate Deputy Minister of Departments of Labor and Advanced Education Community Services. We discuss with her the province's COVID-19 vaccine rollout and what more we can do as a community to encourage vaccination. On BizBuzz, we have a few business updates to share. We'll talk about what's open in downtown Halifax, patio season, pups on patios, and our new Meet Me Downtown and parking campaigns. This episode is being recorded on Thursday, June 17th, so keep that in mind while listening. The pandemic situation and the provincial reopening has been changing quickly, with new public health measures and economic programs affecting businesses implemented by the provincial government almost daily. To keep up to date, visit downtownhalifax.ca slash COVID-19 or visit novascotia.ca slash coronavirus. Prior to joining the Nova Scotia provincial government, Tracy Barbrick spent time in both the private sector and municipal government in positions including research, manufacturing and quality improvement, and environmental management. She began her provincial government career in 2001 at the Department of Environment and Labor. In 2010, she joined the Department of Health and Wellness, where she was appointed Associate Deputy Minister in 2015. Since then, Tracy has been the Associate Deputy Minister of Departments of Labor and Advanced Education Community Services and is now responsible for the province's COVID-19 vaccine rollout. Tracy has an undergraduate science degree from St. Francis Xavier University, a diploma in environmental technology from Holland College, and a master's in public administration from Dalhousie University. Welcome, Associate Deputy Minister Barbrick. Uh, May I call you Tracy? You certainly can. Perfect. Thank you. And thank you for taking the time to talk to us. Uh, I'm going to jump right into some questions, if you don't mind. So my first question is, first of all, talk to me like I'm five years old. Why is it important to be important to be vaccinated? Yeah, I'm happy to talk to you like you're five years old. <laughs> I, uh, you know, I happen to have some kids in my life. So uh, we talk a lot at home about why vaccine is important. So first of all, it's highly effective at protecting you from prevention uh, of ser- serious illness, hospitalization and death, not just you, but your transmission to those you love and care about and those that live in your community. So that we're learning more and more about as this vaccine is on the market, that originally the expectation is that it would protect us, uh, us individually, but its, its effect around population immunity is, is understood more and more as time goes by. The other is economic recovery. The province and the country can't get back on its feet until we can all move closer to uh, to normal to bring our economy uh, back to where it was. So this is, that's important. Travel for each of us independently. There's more and more expectations around being able to demonstrate that you've been vaccinated and things like quarantine requirements shifting if you are or are not vaccinated. So even just the convenience of moving around in the world uh, I think will will be a different. Uh, it'll be a different world when we recover from 
uh, from this pandemic. And I, you know, Nova Scotians are coming. We're 73% first uh, dose or more in ARM. So people are clearly seeing the importance of that. And we just need to get a little bit higher. That's great. That's a great stat. For us, you know, realizing, you know, that personal and public health and economic health are so much so in line right now. And it's really apparent um, to the public and uh, to the business community. Uh, so that's great that that, uh, that vaccinations are going up. Yeah. Uh, so you are in charge, your department, your team is in charge of the vaccine rollout for the province. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about the overall strategy for the rollout and how has it changed over time? Because I know things that are, you know, new information, new evidence coming out every day. So how has that changed? There is nothing about this vaccine rollout that has been anything except change. It's mm-hmm. changing every day. We get new information every day. We have new supply figures every day. It has been uh, a, a very nothing that you thought you would have done in the beginning of planning. This kind of thing is is the way it has rolled out. Uh, our priority in the early days was getting to those at greatest risk first. So for us and every other province in the country, that's age-based approach. Our older people are at the greatest risk. Those living in group settings, so the larger the group living under one roof, the greatest risk they were at. So uh, we started there and worked our way through long-term care facilities and facilities for adults with disabilities and corrections and all of those places where transmission can take off really quickly. Our healthcare workers who are on the front line of the COVID response uh, certainly uh, came early in in the uh, rollout. And then finally, an equity lens across the whole province. So a uh, primary focus on geographic distribution. We didn't want to end up having, for instance, our urban uh, cores fully vaccinated and then our rural communities not. Uh, we didn't want to find that, you know, Halifax was highly vaccinated, but Yarmouth was, was not. So we were very committed to an equitable distribution that was based on the population in the province and what their age groups were and f- focusing on bringing the whole province uh, down together in terms of the ages that we that we work through. We also did an, a lot of work with our First Nations communities to offer vaccine clinics in their own health uh, health uh, the health directors in their health clinics. Uh, we've worked with our African Nova Scotian communities to do a lot there. Our temporary foreign workers that are in and out of the province and very important to our agriculture sector, our corrections facilities, shelters. We've done some specific day program clinics for those uh, adults with disabilities. So really focused on equity on on top of those that are sort of at greatest risk. So that strategy, you haven't really strayed uh, too far from that from the beginning. I know that it was, you know, age-based and and uh, equity um, and uh, healthcare workers; uh, those were the priorities and um, sort of the tiers of uh, vaccination. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. We've stayed quite true to that. Uh, Of course, one of the biggest changes that happened in the rollout that uh, sort of changed the strategy for the whole country was when the recommendations came out from the National Advisory Panel on Immunization that we could go from 21 or 28 days with the Pfizer and Moderna in the early days out to 105 days uh, under the um, intent of getting everybody a first dose in their arm as as early as we could. That was a game changer because in early days, we thought we weren't going to get to some Nova Scotians for their first dose even until the end of September. 
what this meant is that before the end of June, we were able to have a first dose in everybody's arm that wanted it and move on to second doses. So that was a big change in terms of our rollout. The second uh, greatest change that we've had is the advice that mRNA products, so the Pfizer and Moderna, are now interchangeable. So Mm -hmm. our supply has been so varied uh, over the last six months that having to have the exact right number of doses uh, for everybody due for their second arm of the exact same product was a, a tremendous logistical effort when our supply is so varied. So we were going to need to kind of hold back certain amounts of vaccine to make sure that we had a second dose for everybody. And when the interchangeability came out just a few weeks ago, it meant that I can have, I had a Pfizer first dose and I likely will have a Moderna second dose because we're expected to have so much more Moderna in the next number of weeks than we have Pfizer. So that's a big game changer and one we really want Nova Scotians to get comfortable with uh, because it really is something that happens routinely in in vaccinations. So our annual flu vaccine is often a different brand based on national procurement strategies and we don't even know it. So this vaccine has been a little bit different because the way we were all so informed uh, so people now are attached to one or the other, and we really need to get away from that because the fastest way to get everybody in the province two doses in arms is to support that interchangeability. That is, that's funny that I should mention that. It's true that people getting the flu shot wouldn't know what brand. They wouldn't be able to name what brand that they got. No, or HIV or medical, mm-hmm. you know, lot, lots of those vaccines, right. we, we don't actually know the brand. Right. Uh, so I've started to describe it as, you know, a, a, the difference between Pepsi and Coke. Mm-hmm. We kind of have a leaning for one reason or another, uh, but it's probably not that different uh, in terms of what you would notice if you had it in a glass separately without the bottle. Uh, right. So uh, that, you know, that's something that we really need to get comfortable with over the next few months so that, that uh, we can move through our population as quickly as we can. Right. And you did touch on uh, supply. And this question, the next question, uh, came from our CEO, Paul McKinnon. He wasn't, unfortunately, be able, wasn't able to be here uh, for this conversation, but he did throw a question uh, to me uh, to ask you. Uh, so he asks, are we prepared to significantly advance the vaccination timetable if we suddenly get a lot of vaccines, i.e., you know, as U.S. rates decline, uh, they may um, make more available to us? Uh, do, you, do we have the reason? to do that? Yeah, and that eventuality has come come to fruition. So we built, when we originally started to plan this rollout, we were uh, informed that the most vaccine Nova Scotia would ever get per week uh, was about 80,000 doses. Uh, So we built a system that could take about 90,000 doses a week. And now, sure enough, we have a large bolus of Moderna coming our way over a very short period of time that has us needing to exceed above that. So deep into planning with all of our partners, so we have physician partners and pharmacy partners and, of course, our community clinics, and the very first thing we start to do is how much can we flex this system up? How high can we get in terms of our ability to move vaccine? Um, you know, the the interesting thing about this is that the, the table of the willing is much larger than a normal table. Uh, the, the commitment to get through this pandemic from every piece of this system is is really um, 
just such a heartwarming, uh, you know, event to see so many Nova Scotians digging in deep, working just lots and lots of hours. We've had, um, you know, we have supply, uh, you know, human resources kind of in reserve that have been trained and ready to go. So they're all coming into play. And in Nova Scotia, two thirds of our vaccine actually moves through community pharmacies. So they're they're flexing up as much as they mm-hmm. possibly can to to vaccinate. So so far, our highest uh, doses per day have been around 21,000 doses per day, and this will require that we run at that level every day for long periods of time. Mm-hmm. So all kinds of people digging in deep right now, so that we can deliver that vaccine as fast as as, as we possibly can. Right. Yeah, I got my first vaccine uh, at a pharmacy, so it was very convenient. Um, So what have been some of the major learnings um, over this period, um, you know, with the uh, vaccine rollout? And uh, let's let's address the elephant in the room. What's with AstraZeneca? So let's uh, let's talk about that. Yeah, so a big a huge learning, I think, uh, for us is is transparency to the consumer. So our job is to get the right information into hands as quickly as we possibly can as soon as we learn it so that people can make an informed decision for themselves. So for some people, uh, when AstraZeneca came out, if the idea of being able to get a vaccine that had a little lower effectiveness levels uh, was more important to you because you were feeling highly anxious or really wanted to be vaccinated quickly, then you might have made a choice to have a dose of AstraZeneca, which was the right thing to do. And as those safety signals started to come out about that thrombotic rare event, so rare but could be serious, uh, that information, we, we were very committed, Dr. Strang was very committed to sharing that information with the public as soon as we had it, uh, and then to continue to provide as much information as we could and allow people to make informed consent for themselves. So that, that, uh, uh, that's been a big learning. The other is this is an emerging vaccine. So the uh, technology behind the mRNA vaccine is not new, but this vaccine itself is new. So we're still learning like any other new vaccine program. So originally, for instance, when HPV vaccine came out, uh, we didn't think that it would require a booster. We now know it does. Uh, and so there's there's a few real-world uh, lived experience as you get vaccine in hundreds of thousands of people's arms, we learn more about the vaccine. So in the early days, that 21 and 28 day interval that everybody was striving for was really just determined based on the fact that the manufacturer ran their trials at those numbers so they could get to market as quickly as they possibly could. So to get it approved, if they kept their two doses together, then that's what they had the evidence on. Over time, provinces went to four months because they had to, to accelerate first doses in arms, and then hundreds and thousands and millions of people followed that interval, and then they started to discover that that interval can be just as effective. So that's a learning, is that new vaccines, uh, we acquire new information, and it changes over time. It doesn't mean that the original decisions were faulty or flawed. It just means we learn uh, as we go. Yes, that's right. And I remember somebody said to me that, you know, that's science. It changes as new evidence emerges. That's science. You know, we we have more learning. Uh, We have more learnings from it. Uh, So I guess transparency was key. um, And there was lots of information out there um, as it uh, emerged uh, for AstraZeneca so that people could make that informed decision. 
So what are some of the uh, challenges uh, currently? I know that uh, it's been, there's been talk about some age groups that were a bit slower uh, on the uptake for, you know, booking uh, vaccines. Uh, and so is that still the case or is the, have they caught up? Yeah, so there, there's a couple of things. You know, one of our challenges is the Delta variant. Uh, you know, it's it's more highly uh, transferable. It has uh, more significant impacts. It is less responsive to a first dose. So that, you know, there's a bit of a national or global uh, race against the Delta variant. So so that's why, you know, the ability to accelerate second doses is, is fantastic. So we've now invited over 200,000 people to move their appointments up. 75% of them are moving their appointment up. So that's terrific news. And when they free up an appointment, then somebody else can move into their appointment. So it's a bit of a domino effect. Uh, so we we really originally we thought we were going to be the end of October before we got two doses in everybody ar- everybody's arms. Now we think we're you know mid August we'll have two doses in everybody's arms, which is wonderful for the fall for school and travel and all that good stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's one thing. Yes, we do have a phenomenon across the country that that 16 to 35 year old group uh, has a little lower uptake, and I think there's sort of three things that we need to think about with that. Uh, One of them is convenience, make the vaccine as convenient as possible. And we now offer vaccine in over 300 locations. So nobody is very far away. We've got a nice, uh, easy booking system with reminders for second doses and those things that make it easy to make sure you get back for the second dose. Uh, We want people to have vaccine confidence. So that's lots of, you know, ad campaigns and myth busters and science information to have people feel confident in the the quality of the vaccine. And the third is kind of complacency, which I think might be this kind of age group. It's, you know, uh, as... uh, as this pandemic has unfolded and it's been a lot of elderly people and people in long-term care facilities. And I think the younger we are, the more invincible we sometimes feel. It's not necessarily anti-vaccination. I don't actually think we, we've done some surveying. It doesn't look like we have a lot of anti-vaxxers. We have some people that kind of want to wait a while. And then we have a lot of people that just sort of, well, yeah, not a lot of people. Clearly we're way up, you know, close to 75% vaccinated, but I do think that might be what's happening with our young people. So we're trying to understand that a little bit better to make sure that we appeal uh, to everybody to get their to get their vaccine. And we need those numbers for our overall population and our our immunity for our for our whole community. Right. The herd immunity that we keep hearing about. Yeah. Yeah. Somebody told me once they don't like the sound of herd immunity makes me feel like a cow. So (laughs) so I've transferred my language to population immunity. Right. Okay. (laughs) Herd immunity is what everybody means. But what, as long as they're healthy, and it's a healthy herd, I don't care. Tell me whatever you want. Yeah. <laughs> healthy and protected. Um, so we have a lot of businesses in downtown Halifax. You know, that's, uh, that's the, or- we're the organization that represents the businesses. So are there any privacy issues around vaccinations for uh, employees and uh, employers? Yes, what should really, they know? Really tricky space. It is mm-hmm. personal health information. Asking if you're vaccinated uh, in terms of health information is not much different than asking if you have 
uh, mental health condition. It's, it's tricky stuff to ask people about. It's very personal information. And, and for some people, they'll wear their vaccine record on their forehead. And some people don't want to share it for whatever reason, uh, you know, because they've either gotten vaccinated and people around them don't support that or vice versa. So they have to be really careful. But I would say for an employer, the, the questions we need to ask ourselves are the same. Am I making it convenient for my employees to go get their vaccination? Am I letting them scoot out to get that without it being necessarily, you know, accommodating that as much as we possibly can? Are we supporting our employees to feel confident in the vaccine and sharing information about it? And are we making sure they're aware of how important they are in the sort of global effort around vaccination? So I think that's the same three questions, whether it's at the public policy level or at the family level or at the employer level. Those are the questions we should be asking ourselves. Right. And this is sort of a related question, you know, and it is a tricky space to be in, you know, in terms of vaccinations and employer-employee relationships. Uh, So what can individuals, businesses, and organizations do to encourage vaccination to get that population immunity without violating anybody's privacy? Yeah. So I think go to our website, print off some of the posters that are available there, stick them up in your offices as much as you can, kind of host conversations about vaccine, invite people like me to come in and talk about vaccine. We, we can sort of help get, get, build that, uh, that comfort. We have for really large employers that for some reason they feel that their community uh, of employees is uh, complacent or just time, you know, access is a trouble for them. We are looking at maybe some larger employers having on-site vaccination clinics as we kind of finish off our table of the willing and we need to dig a little deeper to keep people coming. Uh, and I've heard some amazing stories about uh, uh, incentive little contests and things. So I heard two that I'll, I'll flag. The mainland trade, uh, building trades has a, a bit of a challenge out right now uh, that they're, you know, anyone that sends a a picture of themselves with their vaccine record gets entered into a draw for some fairly sizable money. That's a big one. But the other one I heard is about a, a seafood plant operator uh, that's a co-op. Uh, and they've been very, they're so worried about an outbreak put, taking all their employees out that they've been really strict with their, their public health requirements and the employees have been wearing their masks even outside. So there was a day, that 30-degree day we had a while ago, and the employees clearly were not comfortable with the mask on, so they were sort of complaining. And he said, I'll tell you what, if you all show me that you've been vaccinated, you can take your masks off around the property. So within a couple of days, the entire workforce of 40 people had been in and got vaccinated, and he didn't, he's no longer requiring them to wear masks outside. So I, I think there's all kinds of employers doing some really creative things because when they lose employees, uh, they lose, uh, you know, their their economic well-being is impacted by that. So I've heard lots of great things. So I keep at the chamber events, kind of throwing out challenges to think about a creative ways to do that. The other thing I've seen, uh, so my daughter is starting university in September, and if she is has two doses of vaccine, she doesn't have to uh, quarantine when she gets there for two weeks. So for her, not having to quarantine and miss out on lots of exciting things. So I see universities are starting to do things that aren't necessarily their provincial public health requirements, but they're choosing to do things themselves. Uh, so those are all ter- terrific things. Yeah, it really does uh, affect your freedom and your being able to socialize and and being more productive, you know, not having to wear masks in the heat. Those are great incentives, and uh, em- employers need to be creative to encourage employees uh, to get and that I, vaccine. 
I, I think that the mandatory, we do get that question sometimes, can I make it mandatory? To me, that's the furthest on the mm-hmm. step. Like if you've done everything else, all of the convenience right. and the complacency and the confidence and all of that, incentives, and, and if at the end of the day, for instance, in healthcare, we have this discussion a lot uh, because vaccines are not mandatory in healthcare, same human rights issues apply. Uh, but I think it's, it's, you don't go to that, to the, the stick is not the place to start. Uh-huh. The place to start is all those other things. If you've exhausted right. those and we're still not getting where we need to go, then the mandatory conversation maybe someday has to apply. Right. I think in the States and in some of the provinces out West, they've even done lottery. Uh, so you can actually have a chance to win millions of dollars, which is amazing. But fortunately, we aren't able to do it, uh, do that as Downtown Halifax Business Commission, but we did do a giveaway uh, for vaccination. So we're okay. trying to do our bit uh, to to, you know, encourage that. Well, and I saw PEI, I think maybe just yesterday, has announced basically, I think it's probably a tourism incentive package as much as it is a vaccine program that they are um, they are offering some raffles for different things that are uh-huh. at local businesses. So there's no limit to, to creativity for that, which is great. Mm-hmm. So, Tracy, anything else you'd like to add uh, as a, a last thought or advice? No, I think anything anyone can do to keep anyone that hasn't had their first dose uh, to support them understanding, you know, any positive things about the vaccine or just information so people can make their decision, helping them understand that they're part of the path forward uh, for the economic recovery that we need. Uh, anyone that hasn't gotten a first dose, there's there's lots of appointments and uh, and we're ready to stick one in your arm. Great. Thank you so much, Tracy, for joining us on Downtown Lowdown. Such a pleasure talking to you and very informative. So hopefully we can all get back to a healthier, safer, and more open new normal. So thanks again. Thank you very much for having me. We were talking to Tracy Barbrick, Associate Deputy Minister of Departments of Labor and Advanced Education Community Services. We were discussing the province's COVID-19 vaccine rollout. To learn more about Nova Scotia's vaccine plan and approved vaccines or to book a vaccine appointment, visit novascotia.ca slash coronavirus slash vaccine. We now have Paul McKinnon, CEO of Downtown Halifax Business Commission. He's going to discuss the impact of phase two of the province's reopening plan on businesses in downtown Halifax and the newly announced provincial support for the tourism sector. He'll also update us on some of DHBC's advocacy efforts. So, Paul, can you tell us more about the provincial tourism supports? I can. I can certainly try it. Uh, I mean, lots of stuff happens week to week. That's why our loyal listeners always like to tune into this podcast because they get so much information. So we've got uh, lots of lot, lots has happened since last week. So let's dive into that. So we know from conversations, I think everyone knows that uh, the tourism industry in particular um, has been hit very hard. I mean, lots of industries have been impacted by the lockdown, but tourism, you know, uh, dependent industries essentially kind of lost uh, the season last year to a great extent uh, and are obviously very concerned about this year. So that's been a, a, a big message for both groups like ourselves, as well as the Hotel Association and the Tourism Industry Association of Nova Scotia uh, and, and other groups. So uh, the provincial government uh, has been hearing that uh, from all sorts of different uh, sources. And uh, came out this week with uh, with some pretty exciting announcements. Uh, I think the response from the tourism industry has been very positive um, to these. So there's a couple of things they announced. Um, one of them was just a, a lot more money uh, put into marketing campaigns. So you know part of the concern all along has been even even as the tourism season 
you know, reopens both to Nova Scotians that can that can travel again, as well as Atlantic Canadians, and then we'll talk a bit more about about beyond that. But even as the markets start to open up, the big concern is that you know, people have to make plans. We, we still need to market, um, you know, Halifax and downtown Halifax and Nova Scotia as as great destinations. So marketing campaigns are always super important for tourism. And so uh, the province announced some supports uh, to go into, uh, you know, enhanced marketing campaigns. These were, in many cases, campaigns that were underway, but they're going to be beefed up with some additional money from the province. So that's great. And it's groups like Tourism Nova Scotia will be will be looking after that. And and they're obviously a, uh, an organization that's uh, their their whole shtick is uh, is marketing tourism. So they're going to do a great job. We, we saw some sneak peeks of some of those campaigns, and, and they look great. They made me feel homesick for Nova Scotia, even though. I've, we've been here. We've all been You're here. You're here. Fourteen months. I'm <laughs> right. here now, and I uh, haven't gone anywhere for a long time. But right. made me excited. Made me excited about being in Nova Scotia. So, uh, so new campaigns coming. Look for those. You'll see them everywhere. Um, so, another new program, brand new program, was uh, the Tourism Accommodation Restart Customer Attraction Program. I haven't looked to see if that makes a cool acronym or not. Uh, it's the TARCAP. Yeah, the TARC app. Uh, this one's exciting as well. This is a, a direct grant program uh, for uh, accom- the accommodation sector, so hotels and bed and breakfast, those types of things. Uh, and essentially what it is, it's $1,000 per room. So if you're a bed and breakfast, I guess, and you have one room, you get 1000 bucks. If you're uh, a large downtown hotel and you've got 300 rooms, you get uh, $1,000 times 300 rooms. What's that, Ivy? You're good at math? Oh, I'm not good at math. I'm not going to even answer okay. that. <laughs> All right. I think it's $300,000. Anyway. The intention of that is that hotels can offer, you know, incentive programs. They can use that money for promotion purposes. They can build exciting packages. You stay for three nights and get a fourth night free, or you get this great downtown Halifax, you know, gift basket full of coupons and goodies, that type of thing. And so I know the Hotel Association, uh, Hotel Association of Nova Scotia is, is working on uh, coordinating with their various partners to, uh, to do some great stuff with those funds. So that's, again, that's money directly into the pockets of, uh, hotel and accommodation operators um, to enhance their product. Um, so hopefully we'll get more people staying in hotels over the course of the summer. So that's a great program. Uh, right. And if, uh, if you are a tourism operator and you want more information, it is on the Nova Scotia website, Nova Scotia government web- website under coronavirus and financial help and social supports. The URL itself is pretty long, so I won't rattle it off, but you can find it under financial help and social supports. Or if you just type in TARCAP into Bing, uh, who knows what you'll get. It, it, I def, it definitely won't lead you to this program. I don't think anybody know. knows what Bing is, and uh, I don't think TARCAP is really catching on, Paul. <laughs> but you can carry right. on. Anyway, moving on. Um, so one of the programs that we've been putting a lot of uh, effort into is uh, with our group we've talked about many times before, the Nova Scotia Business uh, and Labor Economic Coalition of, uh, of Businesses and Labor Groups. Um, so we've been working on some uh, really, I guess, what we call a tactical plan. So these are programs and initiatives that we can that we can roll out this summer. And again, meant to enhance our downtowns, main streets, promote tourism and, and activity. And so we put together a tactical plan, and we had uh, we've been working cooperatively with the province. But the plan was kind of theoretical because there wasn't any funding behind it. Uh, but the province knew that there was an ask coming, and so we did ask them for two million dollars. And the province on uh, this week said, "Yes, we'll give you two million dollars to activate that." So there's a whole bunch of individual initiatives that will be uh, coming out of that, and I'm sure there'll be more public details coming very soon. Uh, but we're we're very excited about that, and that's been a very uh, a very cooperative process with a whole bunch of different organizations. And these will be programs that will be rolled out uh, across Nova Scotia, but we'll certainly be seeing some of those uh, happening here in downtown Halifax. 
So the total amount in terms of tourism supports the province announced was $18.2 million. So um, a good amount of money. And so uh, we're excited to see those uh, hopefully make a, a difference to the tourism sector this summer. And Paul, did you want to talk about some of uh, downtown Halifax's uh, advocacy efforts? So we've had an ongoing conversation uh, with the province, as well as many other groups have, um, really giving feedback. Uh, They had lots of feedback around the reopening plan. Uh, And again, the province, to their credit, did respond to some of that feedback. So some of that feedback was uh, was putting dates to some of the reopening phases as part of the reopening plan. Uh, We've had some conversations around the need for uh, a more robust recovery plan, uh, which we want to work collaboratively with the province on. And so I don't know if the province is always excited to get feedback from the industry, but but certainly, I, I think it's fair to say they've been open to it, uh, and, they've, and they've made some changes based on a lot of that feedback. So uh, we will continue to, um, to, to push, I think, some uh, pushback on some of the things that we'd like to see happening. Um, one of the conversations that's happening at the moment is uh, the state of the ability to be able to travel to and from Nova Scotia. So it, it's a lot more confusing than it was last year. So last year, we had the infamous Atlantic bubble. So essentially, for the summer tourism season, you could travel between the Atlantic provinces uh, fairly easily, and, and essentially the Atlantic provinces were, were closed off to the rest of Canada. So that uh, the bubble has really been burst, I guess, a bit this year, uh, and that the four Atlantic provinces are each kind of designing their own programs. And so New Brunswick and Newfoundland seem to be fairly open to, uh, to travel from Canada. PEI is, is a bit more restrictive, uh, and Nova Scotia is a bit more restrictive. And so it does create a bit of an, uh, a strange situation. So the intention, if you look at the reopening plan, seems to be that Nova Scotia is going to be open to allowing people from the Atlantic provinces to come to Nova Scotia, uh, but but aren't going to be really open to to the rest of Canada, uh, with the exception we're hearing now of people that have, have two doses of vaccine, that they're trying to figure out a way to allow those people to come in from, from wherever, frankly, um, which, which makes a lot of sense. So that is, that is some good news and a bit more clarification uh, that's happened on that front. But for people with, with no vaccination or with one dose, uh, the intention at the moment seems to be you know, yes, you could come here from Ontario if you've got one dose of vaccination, but you'll have to self self isolate for 14 days. So that really makes it tricky for the for the tourism industry. I mean, you can imagine, unless you're really planning to come to Nova Scotia for a long time, uh, not many folks are going to want to hop on a plane from Ontario or British Columbia, come to Nova Scotia, isolate for 14 days, and then begin their their vacation. So um, there's been a, a big push, I think, from a lot of the industry, in particular the tourism industry or other groups that, that really depend on tourism, to say, is there any way that we can open our borders uh, beyond the Atlantic provinces to Canada, especially in light of the fact that, you know, New Brunswick will be open, right? So you've got a situation where Nova Scotia is allowing people from New Brunswick to come in, uh, and New Brunswick is allowing people from anywhere in Canada to come in. So New Brunswickers will be intermingling with, with travelers from all over Canada, and they'll be allowed to come to Nova Scotia, but those travelers in New Brunswick from other provinces won't be. So I think there's, there's a lot of confusion around that. Uh, and I think a consensus amongst many in the tourism industry in particular to say, if that's the case, that doesn't maybe doesn't make a lot of logical sense. And why don't we really push towards you know, how can we safely open our borders to travelers from across Canada? And so there, there are ways that can happen in other provinces. They're doing that and figuring out ways to, 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 to do that safely. And so that's really the message that we've been, uh, we've been getting to the province, uh, not only ourselves, but other groups as well, to say it would be great if by July uh, we could open our borders. Let's figure out how to do that safely. Let's figure out how to do testing or whatever is required to do that. Um, but, you know, as long as we've got you know, the requirement for quarantine, uh, Nova Scotia really isn't open to travel. So we're, uh, we're continuing those conversations with the province, and we'll see what happens uh, over the next little while. And, and we do appreciate the fact that they've been, uh, they've been open to being flexible uh, and again, this is all, there's all emerging science and studies and all these things. So 
Um, uh, the reopening plan needs to remain flexible. Um, there's good parts of that part of that. The good part is that we can see improvements uh, happen and have. So uh, hopefully we'll have a, a more positive update on this uh, next week. All right. Yeah, we'll uh, update everyone on the next uh, podcast. So, Paul, uh, so now we're in phase two of the reopening plan, uh, provincial reopening plan. So how has that affected downtown? What are you seeing? Well, it's very exciting. So welcome to, to phase two. This is the, as of, as of this recording, this is the first day, and I actually ate inside of a restaurant uh, for lunch today, which was, which was very exciting. It had been a while since I had done that. So phase two, you can now dine indoors. Um, there's still, obviously people still need to be spaced, um, uh, within the restaurants, but you can do outdoor dining on beautiful days, but indoor dining is, is back, uh, back on the menu. Um, we also have, um, retail is open up to 50%. Uh, the capacity issues for retail downtown aren't, aren't necessarily that big of an issue, but, um, you know, the, the more that we can have capacity, the, the better it is for retailers. So that's moved from 25%, which was in the previous phase to, to 50%. Uh, which is good. And one that's of interest, I guess, to, to businesses operating downtown is that you can now have meetings again inside. So during earlier phases, um, Dr. Stein was really, I guess, encouraging working from home unless it was absolutely necessary. Um, that is That messaging is kind of disappearing. I don't know that he's necessarily telling people you, you need to go back to work, but certainly it's, it's a lot easier to get back to work now. And people can actually have meetings. Um, so during phase two, uh, you can have meetings um, depending on what you're what your venue is, as long as it's a kind of a, you know, a business or legitimate organization, uh, you can have up to 25% capacity. So the, you know, the bigger the space, the bigger the meeting can be. Uh, and again, the intention is still to have people, um, you know, spaced apart. So it's kind of essentially almost back to what we had, um, really, I guess, between wave two and wave three, when we actually could have meetings in person. So for groups like ourselves that have lots of, you know, we've got lots of staff meetings, we've got board meetings and committee meetings. Uh, it allows us the option of, uh, of at least uh, entertaining some of those uh, back in person again, which, which is exciting uh, for us to do. Not that, not that Zoom's ever going away, I guess, but, um, but we'll, be, we'll be doing some more in-person meetings for sure. So, yeah, so some definitely some, some positive changes in Phase 2, and uh, I'm looking forward to getting into Phase 3, where those uh, restrictions will lift uh, even more. Great. So thank you, Paul, for the update, and we'll have more updates in our next episode. Thanks for having me back. We were talking to Paul McKinnon, CEO of Downtown Halifax Business Commission. He discussed the impact of Phase 2 of the province's reopening plan and the new provincial supports for the tourism sector. He also updated us on DHBC's advocacy efforts. As always, Downtown Halifax Business Commission strives to provide the latest COVID-19-related information as the province revises restrictions. DHBC continues to follow the directors of the Nova Scotia Health Authority. Check DHBC's main COVID-19 resource page for businesses and for the public at downtownhalifax.ca slash COVID-19. The provincial state of emergency has been renewed and remains in effect until 12 noon, June 27, 2021. Premier Ian Rankin and Dr. Robert Strang, Nova Scotia's Chief Medical Officer of Health, announced that Nova Scotia will start the second phase of its reopening plan as of June 16th and open the borders to Atlantic Canadians on June 23rd. Residents of New Brunswick, Prince Edward Island, and Newfoundland and Labrador will be able to travel to Nova Scotia without having to self-isolate. Once a person from outside the Atlantic region has completed 14 days of self-isolation in one Atlantic province, they are free to travel to Nova Scotia without further isolation requirements. The following restrictions are being eased province-wide. 
For gatherings, informal gatherings can have 10 people indoors and 25 people outdoors without physical distance. Informal faith gatherings can have 10 people indoors and 25 people outdoors, plus officiants. Informal weddings and funerals and associated receptions and visitations can have 10 people indoors and 25 people outdoors, plus officiants. When faith gatherings, weddings, funerals, and associated receptions and visitations are hosted by a recognized business or organization, they can have 25% capacity to a maximum of 50 people indoors and 75 people outdoors. For business, restaurants and licensed establishments can operate indoors and outdoors at their maximum capacity with physical distance between patrons at different tables and a limit of 10 people per table. People must wear masks when not eating or drinking. One performer of live music is permitted. Service must stop by 11 p.m. and establishments must close by midnight. All retail stores can operate at 50% capacity with no limit on the number of shoppers per household. Personal services such as hair salons, barbershops, and spas can operate by appointment only following their sector plan and can resume offering services that require removing the customer's mask. Meetings and training hosted by a recognized business or organization can have 25% capacity to a maximum of 50 people indoors and 75 people outdoors. Events hosted by a recognized business or organization can have 25% capacity to a maximum of 50 people indoors or 75 people outdoors. Organizers need a plan following guidelines for events. For recreation and sport, fitness and recreation facilities such as gyms, yoga studios, pools, and arenas can operate at 50% capacity. A wide variety of recreation and leisure businesses and organizations, such as dance classes, music lessons, escape rooms, and indoor play spaces can operate at 25% capacity. Organized sports practices can involve up to 10 people indoors and 25 people outdoors without physical distancing. Audiences can follow the gathering limits for events hosted by a recognized business or organization. Day camps can operate with 15 per group and following approved day camp guidelines. Activities such as darts, cards, and bingo can resume when hosted by either a licensed or unlicensed establishment following guidelines for these activities. For arts and culture, amateur arts and culture rehearsals and virtual or in-person performances can involve up to 10 people indoors and 25 people outdoors without physical distancing. Professional arts and culture rehearsals and virtual or in-person performances can involve up to 15 people indoors and 25 outdoors without physical distancing. Audiences must follow the gathering limits for events hosted by a recognized business or organization. Museums, libraries, and the Art Gallery of Nova Scotia can open at 25% capacity. People who do not follow the public health measures can be fined. The fine is $2,000 per person at an illegal gathering. The full provincial reopening plan can be found at novascotia.ca slash reopening hyphen plan. These are just some of the restrictions that may affect businesses, workers, and visitors in downtown Halifax. For more information and a full list of restrictions, visit the Nova Scotia Health Authority website at novascotia.ca slash coronavirus. And now for BizBuzz. And it's time for BizBuzz. Lauren Andrews, our communications and marketing coordinator, is here with me today, along with Ivy. Hi, Lauren and Ivy. Thanks for joining me. Hi. Hello. On this episode of BizBuzz, we'll talk about what's open in downtown Halifax now that we are in phase two of the reopening plan, patio season and dog-friendly patios, and we'll touch quickly on our new Meet Me Downtown and parking campaigns for the summer. 
But first, Lauren has some business updates for us. Lauren, do you want to tell us what's new in business in downtown Halifax? Sure. First, Peace by Chocolate is partnering with Buza Inessa. They will be offering high-quality Syrian ice cream and chocolate and pistachio flavors. Their original Morris East Pizzeria location at 5212 Morris Street has new owners. They will license the Morris East name for four months, and after the transition, they will launch a new restaurant. The park located at the corner of Barrington and South Streets has officially been renamed Peace and Friendship Park. The park was named to honor the Peace and Friendship Treaties. El Mio Halifax has new owners and has rebranded to the Halifax Bra Store, located at 1496 Lower Water Street. You can check out their bras, loungewear, swimwear, and menswear in person or online at halifaxbrastore.ca. On June 9th, the Urban Design Awards virtual ceremony was hosted by HRM. The awards celebrated urban design excellence in the region. Congratulations to the downtown Halifax winners. Halifax Waterfront Sea Bridge for the Award of Excellence in Civic Design. City Hall New Clerk's Office for the Award of Excellence in the Heritage Adaptive Reuse category and Urban Micro-Regeneration in the Student Project category for the Award of Excellence. Thanks, Lauren. So now that we are in Phase 2 of the Provincial Reopening Plan, more businesses and attractions have opened in downtown Halifax. Now that restaurants are allowed to have indoor dining, more restaurants and cafes have reopened, including the Barrington Steakhouse, Obladia Wine Bar, Hermitage, Cafe Chianti, D'Amorizio's, Beerly's House of Blues, and more. Personal and wellness service businesses like salons, spas, barber shops, and body art establishments are now fully open by appointment only and can offer all services, including ones that require the removal of a client's mask. So, for example, you can now get a facial again. Gyms, fitness facilities, and dance studios are also open again at 50% capacity, and that includes Purdy's War Fitness Facility, F45 Training on Hollis Street, House of Eight's Dance Studio, and Haliante Creative Studio. Downtown Halifax's major attractions have all reopened again. This includes the Halifax Citadel National Historic Site, the Art Gallery of Nova Scotia, the Canadian Museum of Immigration at Pier 21, and the Maritime Museum of the Atlantic. And many more businesses are continuing to reopen over the next few weeks. I recommend checking the social and websites of the individual business that you are interested in to see if they are open and their hours of operation before heading out. And if you are not able or ready to venture out yet, most businesses are still operating online and offering takeout, curbside pickup, and local delivery. We've been updating our What's Open in Downtown Halifax pages on our website, and you can see a list of what is open and open online at downtownhalifax.ca open. Please take note that these pages are constantly being updated as things change, so if you notice something that needs to be updated or added, don't hesitate to contact communications at downtownhalifax.ca. And we know that everyone is excited to get back out and enjoy downtown Halifax again, but we'd like to remind everyone to continue to follow COVID protocols when you're out. So make sure you always have a mask with you, wash and sanitize your hands as frequently as you can, and try to keep a safe distance between yourself and others outside of your bubble. And I would like to remind our listeners that frequent testing is the key to keeping our numbers low and a reopening plan on track. Rapid COVID-19 testing is continuing daily at the Halifax Convention Centre. Pop in for a rapid test when you come downtown to sit on a patio, browse the shops, or stroll the Waterfront Harbor Walk. Follow at HFX underscore Lauren on Instagram and Twitter to keep up to date on testing locations and times. So moving on. 
Patio season is now in full swing. And did you know that downtown Halifax is well over 60 patios? There are patios of all shapes and sizes in downtown Halifax. Smaller sidewalk cafes, beer gardens, courtyard patios, covered patios, rooftop patios, and more. If you're looking for some patio inspiration, then you are in luck. We have most of the patios in downtown Halifax listed on our website at downtownhalifax.ca patios. We are still in the process of updating that page for the summer, but it is a good place to start for some patio inspiration. And if you're a business in downtown Halifax and would like your patio listed on the page, email communications at downtownhalifax.ca with a photo of your patio and the address. And the big news regarding patios this summer is that pet dogs are now allowed on patios in downtown Halifax. That's right, you can now bring Fido or Rover to a patio with you. But there are a few things to take note of before taking your pooch to a patio. First, ask if your dog is allowed on the patio. Some patios may not be welcoming dog yet or may have a quota for how many dogs their patio can take. Dogs are not allowed inside the restaurant or cafe. Note that this rule does not apply to service dogs. Dogs are not allowed to eat but can drink water if the bowl is brought by the dog owner. And of course, be respectful of the space and of other diners. Don't let your dogs on the patio furniture, clean up after your dog, and if your dog is misbehaving, please know that you may be asked to leave the patio. If you're a business in downtown Halifax that has a dog-friendly patio, we have created some Pups on Patios material that you can use to promote your dog-friendly patio, including posters, window decals, and social and digital graphics. We will be delivering these posters and decals along with a DHBC-branded dog bowl to businesses with curbside patios this week, or you can visit downtownhalifax.ca slash pups on patios to download the material and graphics yourself. Next up, we are launching a new version of our Meet Me Downtown campaign on June 30th. This campaign will be featuring all the feel-good moments you can experience downtown, like enjoying drinks on a patio, having an ice cream on the waterfront, eating a cookie the size of your head, and more. The goal of the campaign is to get people back downtown to experience those feel-good moments and create more feel-good moments. For more information, you can visit downtownhalifax.ca slash meetme. And make sure you are following at Downtown Halifax on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, as we'll be showcasing the campaign and doing some giveaways. And last but not least, let's talk about parking in Downtown Halifax. First, on-street parking will be free after 4 p.m. on Thursdays and Fridays until September 10th. Second, we have recently updated our Park Smart and Downtown Halifax page on our website. This page features all the information you need to know about parking in Downtown Halifax, and it is a good place to visit before heading downtown with your vehicle. Visit downtownhalifax.ca slash parksmart for more information. We'll also be launching a parking awareness campaign later this month that we are hoping will help dispel the myth that there's no parking in downtown Halifax because there are actually thousands of parking spaces in the downtown area. So again, make sure you are following at Downtown Halifax to keep up to date on this campaign. And before we sign off, does anyone have any downtown Halifax experiences to share? Sure, I have a few. Okay, great. Um, so I went to Harvest, uh, so it's a vegan, vegetarian place, uh, restaurant, and I sat on their patio and yeah, ate Yeah, they have a lunch. nice patio. Yes, I yeah. ate lunch with a couple of friends, so that was really pleasant because mm-hmm. uh, I'd never been there before, and it was yeah. really good food. And they are located on uh, the corner of Market and Sackville Street. That's right. They're looking yeah. right down, down Sackville Street. Yeah, yeah, and their patio is big because it's mm-hmm. on – both sides of the building. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's on Market and Sackville. So they have a lot of space outdoors, but you can actually eat indoors. It was actually cold that day, and I wish I was wishing that we could eat indoors, but now mm-hmm. we can. So now it's you great. Can. I yeah. know. I haven't tried Harvest yet, but I'm hoping to go sometime soon. Yeah, so we had Power Bowls. Delicious. Oh, nice. 
Yeah. Um, also, I just wanted to touch on some of the picnic tables that are downtown. So people, if they're if you're visiting downtown, you'll notice some really colorful picnic tables. Uh, DHBC, Downtown Halifax Business Commission, has been putting out these picnic tables for years now. It all started with Grand Parade. We had, I believe, eight painted picnic tables in Grand Parade years ago, and the city said, yeah, you can put them in for a couple of months or, you know, actually a few weeks, they said, and they really wanted us to extend it, and they wanted then they wanted us to do it every year, and then now they have their own picnic tables, and we've expanded our program. So you can find picnic tables all over downtown, uh, Peace and Friendship Park, Argyle Street, the waterfront, and throughout. And there are actually 10 accessible uh, picnic tables in downtown Halifax. So we're pretty proud of that uh, placemaking kind of program that we have. So that really helps make downtown more welcoming. And if you do want to eat outdoors, you can just sit down at one of our picnic tables. And you might wonder, how did we get those picnic tables out there? Well, I'll tell you. We have our downtown Halifax crew. They just started earlier this month. Uh, it's a group of seven returning university students that we hire every summer. And they're out on the street, keeping the streets clean by sweeping uh, and also um, answering tourist questions. So this year, the summer will be a little bit different. They'll be talking to regional, I guess, Atlantic uh, tourists. Um, but they have information about best place to, places to eat for what you're craving or attractions for family-friendly activities or playgrounds or parks. They have that information in case people ask them. And, of course, they put out the picnic tables earlier this month. So that's great um, to have that that help. Um, but, yeah, you'll recognize them by uh, their light blue shirts and their khaki pants and their downtown Halifax Business Commission hats and masks. So if you do see them downtown, you know, wave to them and say hi. Yeah. Yeah, they're a great group of kids, I guess. I guess they're kids <laughs> compared to us. Um, they're university students, university so they're students. probably between 18 and 22 or 23. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, but they, yeah, they're all really nice. And, yeah, they are. Yeah, they do. They're, they're working really hard. So, mm-hmm. and they also do some member engagement. So they'll pop in mm-hmm. to businesses to deliver things when we have things to deliver. So that is true. Yeah, people get to know them. What about you, Lauren? Yeah, so I was walking around downtown and I saw that Bedford Row is now pedestrian only. So that's kind of located between Founders Square parking garage and Prince Street. Mm-hmm. So they have a bunch of patios up there with lights, so it's a perfect spot for patio season. I think there's the and the old triangle McKelvey's and Mama Grady's. So I also went to Cafe Taiyaki 52 and got the jaw dropper ice cream. So it's like soft serve ice cream in their fish cones when you can get a filling inside. So I got Nutella and it was super good. Mm-hmm. And they're on Brunswick Street, so yeah. Yeah, I love Cafe Tiaki, and their jaw droppers are so good. Um, definitely need a spoon to help you eat it. I saw but a picture, but it looked really good. Yeah. And their Tiaki is really, they're delicious. And yeah. you can get different dipping sauces and things like that. It was really good. Yeah, it's a, a really, really, um, I guess, a cute little cafe. And yeah. And coffee, and they have cold drinks and other things. So it's definitely a good place to stop. And they also have mm-hmm. a nice uh, sidewalk patio cafe there outside which you can so you can get your ice cream and sit outside there on Brunswick Street so nice um and yeah and Bedford Row is closed again great area to go to eat uh Golden Dog Designs has wrapped the trees again along that area with twinkly lights um so uh if you can get a place on the patio highly recommend going there or even just uh wandering by to check it out 
Yeah, and fun fact, Golden Dog uh, Productions actually did the lighting in Peace and Friendship Park as well. That's right. They, uh, they, uh, they do lots of things with us downtown. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have a couple things, too. Uh, Cuisina Express uh, is a Filipino restaurant located in Barely's House of Blues. I'd heard of it, and then my husband said that he heard really great things from one of his coworkers, so we ordered it the other night. Uh, we got their spring rolls. There was a shrimp and noodle bowl. Um, a bowl called Sizig. I hope I'm saying that right. It's S-I-S-I-G, uh, which is a rice bowl with roasted pork um, and a fried egg on top. And we also got some just chicken tenders and fries for my daughters. And it was all really, really good. The fries were excellent. Um, then shrimp and noodle bowl was so good. The spring rolls were excellent. Um, I would definitely check it out. Uh, again, they're located in Beerley's House of Blues, and they do take out through Uber Eats. So it's – and Cuisina is – I hope I'm saying it right. It's K-U-S-I-N-A. So Cuisina Express. Definitely check it out. It was really good. Um, it's sort of like a little hidden gem. And the other big news is that Cows is open again on the waterfront. I've had actually so many people texting me asking me, like, do you know if Cows is open? It is open. A lot of the vendors in the salt yard are now open. Uh, so we are planning to go for Father's Day. I am a huge fan of peanut butter and chocolate ice cream and their moo crunches, like my favorite. So I'm really not doing it for Father's Day. It's for me. I'm going to, I'm telling my husband we're going to cows, regardless of whether or not he wants it. So, yeah, definitely. <laughs> nope, nothing wrong with that, Elena. <laughs> yeah, nothing wrong, there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, he also likes ice cream. So it's a win-win all around. But uh, it's just such an, also a great place to just stroll around the waterfront and check out the salt yard. Um, again, all the vendors are open. So it's also a great place to go for lunch. So check it out. And I think that's it for BizBuzz this episode. Thanks for joining me. This concludes episode 52 of Downtown Lowdown, recorded on June 17, 2021. For more information, go to downtownhalifax.ca slash podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast and found it informative, please rate and subscribe to Downtown Lowdown. And don't forget to follow at Downtown Halifax on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Thanks for listening.